0: Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm A.C. Rowe. This is The Doc Project. We've been hearing a lot of the term new normal. It comes up as countries and communities slowly begin to imagine what life might be like in the coming weeks. But in prisons, the idea of normal has evaporated. For months, prisoners and their advocates have been warning that COVID-19 will spread like wildfire in jails. And it's happening. The end of last month, 60 inmates and eight staff at the Ontario Correctional Institute in Brampton tested positive for COVID-19. The province shut that jail down and moved some of the people being detained there to another location. A lot of the conversation around prisoners has been focused on releasing non-violent offenders. And in recent weeks, that has been happening. Some prisoners serving sentences have been released early, others have been released temporarily. But approximately 70% of people sitting in Ontario's jails aren't necessarily offenders at all. They haven't been convicted of anything. These people are awaiting trial. They're detained, but presumed innocent. And Ontario isn't alone. According to a 2018 report by the Auditor General, across Canada, there are more people sitting in provincial and territorial jails awaiting trial or sentencing than people actually found guilty. It's been that way since 2005. And so far, as we grapple with COVID-19, there has been no coordinated approach for this group. This means that thousands of pretrial detainees and their lawyers have been left Scrambling for bail, making their cases one by one. And in the push, they could be changing the way the justice system works. Over the past month, we have been following a pretrial detainee and his lawyer as they try to get him out. His case is ongoing, so we're calling him T. Leora Smith is a lawyer turned journalist. She's going to take it from here.
2: Are you comfortable using your name?
3: I prefer an initial, to be honest with you.
2: T grew up in Toronto. How old are you?
3: Um, I'm 21.
2: He was arrested in March on charges related to drugs and possessing a weapon, but he doesn't want to talk much about it.
3: I prefer just not to make anybody know of certain things, right? Due to my own like insecurity and things like that, okay. that's just...
0: Eh.
2: I'll stress this a few times, but it's important to understand that T hasn't been convicted of anything. He's in jail waiting for his trial. He's presumed innocent, which makes him like most other people in Ontario's jails. When T was arrested, he was placed in the Toronto East Detention Center. It's where a lot of people arrested on the east side of Toronto wait for their trials. From the outside, the east looks like a big brown box, broken up by barred windows. On the other side of the windows are hundreds of prisoners. There's no real outdoor space in Toronto East Detention Centre. There's a place called a yard, but it's got cement walls. T says when you look up, you can see the sky through barbed wire. The East was built to fit 340 people, but the province now says its capacity is closer to 370, which really just means they've added more beds into the cells. Sometimes cells, which were really built for two, squeeze three people inside. When this happens, one person sleeps on the floor. Judges have used a lot of words to describe conditions in Toronto's detention centers, oppressive, Unacceptable and quote, consistently failing to meet minimum standards established by the United Nations. But T has his own description.
3: It's a place for for animals. You're being told when to eat, sleep, and be you're locked down at the end of the day.
2: Back in March, when T first went into Toronto East, he remembers less than fifty people in Ontario had confirmed cases of COVID-19. But as the days went on, he had clues that things were getting worse. First, on March 13th, the jails ended all in-person visits. A few days later, the Superior Court of Justice suspended everything but urgent matters, saying it was no longer safe for court staff, lawyers, and people with cases to come to court in person. T remembers a sergeant walking down his row of cells, it's called a range, announcing the changes.
3: The sergeant, she came on the range and she told us, she's like, Courts are canceled, everything's video, no visit, no nothing. It's really hard because the loved ones that you love, they won't be able to see you. And then court cases, things like that, people get pushed back. And and it's not fair for the inmates that are sitting in that position, um, not knowing when they're going to have another court date or they're not going to have another court date for like up to three to four months, which is insane.
2: When the courts closed, pretrial detention became purgatory. Some people had already been waiting inside for months for their trials, some for over a year. Some had trials coming up in April or May, and all of them were canceled. No one had new dates. T had no idea how long he'd have to wait for his trial. No one did.
3: The ones that have been convicted have been sent off already. So the ones that are awaiting their trial are sitting there waiting Waiting, waiting.
2: T's cell faced a common area where a TV blasted the 24-hour news channel. On the news, he saw the numbers of COVID cases outside going up. The men watched together as politicians called for social distancing, then looked around their small common area, their tiny cells.
3: It's like being in a washroom.
2: Up to 20 men in close quarters, new inmates coming in, and a rotation of guards clocking in and out every day exactly the conditions that could lead to a COVID-19 outbreak.
3: It could be quickly, easy to be caught, especially if a guard were to bring it in. That's the, that's the most important part, because then the jail would be screwed.
2: Listening to the news, people inside started to panic. A guard told T that now was the time. Don't stay in here until your trial. Find a way to make bail.
3: If you could try and go for it, go for it, because who knows how bad it's going to get, how fast.
2: T took the advice. He called his lawyer and asked her to do whatever she could to get him out.
4: Um, yeah, it's been, it's been one of the busiest and most stressful and surreal times of my whole career. This is Hillary Detting, T's lawyer. And I'm a criminal defense lawyer, Um, so I defend people who are charged with crimes. Hillary
2: says as soon as the schools closed, it hit her how serious this virus would be. But it was the news about cruises that made her really worried. Because you're confined
4: in, in such a close space with other people. I mean, arguably way closer confinement in jail and way less control over your space than a cruise ship. Um, but it seemed to me that if the reason that things got so out of control on cruise ships was because of those factors, they were going to be doubly a problem uh, for people in jail. It's March,
2: and I'm talking to Hillary over Skype. While the Superior Court closed, the Ontario Court of Justice, which does most bail hearings, stayed open, but only for urgent matters. Hillary knew she had to get her people out. I spent the
4: weekend Looking at a list of all of my clients who were in custody and trying to assess as best I could whether I thought there was any way in which they could access bail. And really the two weeks following that, I've done virtually nothing except try to actualize some of these plans.
2: Clients also started calling her. Then she started getting calls from jail from people who weren't her clients. She told me everybody's looking for bail. To understand this story, I need to pause a minute to talk about bail. In the movies, it goes like this. You get arrested. You go to court. The judge sets your bail. Maybe it's $500. Maybe it's $10,000. Maybe, if you're Harvey Weinstein, it's a million dollars. You pay the bail, and you go home to wait for your trial. Or, if you can't pay your bail, you go to jail and wait there. That's not how it works in Canada. When you're arrested in Canada, the police might let you go straight away, or they might keep you in jail. If they keep you in jail, you go to a courthouse where a defense lawyer and a prosecutor, who we call a Crown, look over your record and your charges. Then, the Crown makes you an offer. Best case scenario, the Crown just agrees to your release. You promise to come back for your court dates, and then you go home. No money, no conditions, easy. But you might not get that offer. Instead, the Crown might say, okay, I'll agree to your release, but only on certain conditions. Maybe the condition is you can't talk to certain people, or maybe that you can't have a gun. There are all kinds of things a Crown might ask for. Sometimes you have to pledge money that you'll pay if you break your conditions. A lot of the time, part of the deal is a surety. That's someone to keep track of you while you're waiting for your court date." One defense attorney told me she heard a justice of the peace call a surety, quote, your community jailer. So those were two options. The Crown agrees to release with no conditions, or release with some conditions and maybe a surety. But there's also a third option. The Crown might not agree to your release at all. That's what happened in T's case. If the Crown doesn't want you out, that's when you get a contested bail hearing. A contested bail hearing is high stakes. If you lose, you might stay in jail for months or even years before your trial. If you're eventually found not guilty, no one compensates you for that time. And there's another thing about bail hearings. You only really get one. If you lose, you can appeal a decision, but it can be hard to win an appeal. It can also be expensive. Sometimes you have lawyers' fees. Often, you have to buy the transcripts from your first bail hearing, which can run you hundreds of dollars. So you really don't ask for a bail hearing until you have a plan that you think you can win. In T's case, Hillary and T hadn't been ready with a plan like that. But now, with COVID-19, things were urgent. What was obvious
4: was that anybody who could get out of jail, we should be trying to get out of jail.
1: Casey here. Coming up, how COVID-19 is changing conditions in Ontario's jails, making them worse, but also drawing attention to them.
0: Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now.
2: A big part of what's scaring Hillary isn't just the threat of her clients getting sick but what the virus is doing to life and conditions inside prisons. The jails are already at a crisis point now without COVID. Judges have been extremely critical of conditions in Ontario's jails. This January, a judge called conditions in Toronto South Detention Centre, quote, deliberate state misconduct. Finding one man had been locked in his cell for nearly half of his two and a half year pre-trial detention and that he'd been given clothes, towels and sheets stained with blood, urine, and feces. Hillary says a lot of people would be shocked by the conditions in Ontario's jails. You know, for a long time in our system, there's been a recognition that the jail conditions
0: in
4: this province, at least, and I think other provinces in Canada, too, fall way below what uh, certainly our international obligations would require and below Just what the average Canadian would think is sort of a standard level of being for another human
2: being who's in in custody. Ontario jails don't look like jails on TV. In Toronto East, there's no wall of bars across each cell. Instead, each cell has a heavy door that's shut every night, closing everyone inside. During lockdowns, which happen when there are staff shortages or violent incidents, those heavy doors can stay closed for a full day, sometimes more food gets passed in through a hatch on the door. Now, take all that and add a pandemic.
4: What I'm concerned about is that if staff gets sick or jail jail guards get sick and there's not enough staffing for the unit, the way they manage that risk is they'll lock the guys down. And so I worry that um, what's going to happen is that even for healthy people, that is obviously a terrible condition to be in if you're trying to stay healthy. And even if you aren't getting sick, living under really dire lockdowns is going to be really, really difficult.
2: And that's what T tells me is already beginning to happen. When I ask T what a day in Toronto East is like, he recites the schedule like he's reading it off the inside of his eyelids.
3: 7.30 you get fed, 8 o'clock you clean, 9 o'clock you get out, you're out from 9 till 10.30 from... 30 you're locked up. 11, you get lunch.
2: But with COVID-19, that lunch, rigid schedule starts changing. 1- he was never sure what was going to happen.
3: Practically every day wasn't promised.
2: And sure enough, there were more lockdowns.
3: Because I guess a lot of workers weren't coming into work and things like that. If there's not enough staff, you won't be allowed out.
2: And so, you felt like that started happening more. Yeah. As for hygiene, T says the correctional officers deliver a pile of toiletries every week. You might get some, but then again, you might not.
3: So every week they come with like a ton of soap and toothbrushes and toothpaste and things like that. But everybody has to divide through everybody on the range. So some people take more than what they need or what they have to, and it leaves a lot of people out of luck.
2: According to T. Access to hand sanitizer is unpredictable, too. Most jails won't let prisoners have hand sanitizer at all because of the alcohol content. But T says the guards in Toronto East keep large bottles of it in the hallways between the cells and the yard. People inside figured out if you buy something from the canteen, like a small bottle of shampoo, you can save the bottle and fill it up with hand sanitizer as you walk by. And were you allowed? Like, was that, if they saw you filling up a bottle, was that fine?
3: For some COs, they would be fine, but for others, they would make a complaint about it.
2: The Solicitor General oversees the management of Ontario's prisons. I reached out, asking them what safety measures have been put in place in the wake of COVID. In a written statement, they said, We have implemented a number of measures at all of our institutions to keep our staff and those in our custody safe. This includes proactive work to address overcrowding in our institutions with the objective to decrease the risk to public health while ensuring public safety. They said that the prison population has been reduced by 32%. Some people released temporarily, some permanently. But they couldn't say how many pre-trial detainees had been released. In reference to lockdowns, they said that, quote, lockdowns are not used to prevent the spread of communicable diseases, and there is no blanket lockdown in response to COVID-19. And that they're, quote, have been some staff shortages related to COVID-19. T said the randomness is what gets to him. Some days you have soap. Some days you don't. Some days you can keep hand sanitizer. Some days you can't. But what feels certain for T is that, no matter how careful he is, as long as he's inside, he can't really keep himself safe.
3: It's really unpredictable because we could be as clean as clean could be. But that one guard that brought it in could affect a whole lot of people. A lot of people are scared because they don't know who would be the next one to come in that has it.
2: Right. It's
3: like, it's, it's, it's a mind game at the end of the day.
2: So this is what Hillary is fighting to get T away from. I think that that's absolutely my
4: duty is to do everything I can to try to help people get out of that situation if it's in any way possible for them.
2: It's already late March when Hillary starts trying to get T out of jail. Preparing for a complicated bail hearing can take weeks. She has a plan ready in days. Hillary and T have found a surety.
3: Um, my mom.
2: And so you stay at her house?
3: Yes, I do. T
2: is also offering to wear an ankle monitor to increase his chance of getting bail. If he gets out, he'll pay a few hundred dollars a month for it. Basically, Hillary and T need to convince a judge that whatever risk the Crown thinks T might pose can be managed, that letting him go home while he waits for his trial is okay. So why might a Crown insist on jail before you're ever convicted? There are only three reasons why a court can keep someone in jail while they wait for their trial. Hillary explains them to me. One, to make sure the person attends their trial.
4: Are they going to flee? Are they going to show up?
2: Two, to protect public safety.
4: The likelihood of the person re-offending in a way that puts the public in danger.
2: And then there's a third one, and this one is a bit more complicated.
4: And it's called the tertiary ground, and it concerns itself with whether or not the public confidence in the administration of justice would be diminished if a person was detained or released.
2: That's a bit of lawyer speak, but basically, even if the court has faith a person will show up for their trial, And even if the court thinks their risk can be managed, the court might order them detained anyways, because they also think about how the public would feel if this person is released. It's a public safety decision, but also a public opinion one. Hillary calls this grounds the quote, send a message grounds. And she says she often sees it used to detain people on charges related to guns or to fentanyl or assaults. These are people accused of these charges, Not convicted of anything. And at the end of the day, to me, I think that's
4: where the rubber has to hit the road in COVID. Because this isn't the time for symbolic gestures, right? This is the time for us to say, look, there's a pandemic coming.
2: Now, maybe for the first time, courts are using the tertiary grounds, public opinion, to think about prisoners' conditions. Defense lawyers are asking judges to consider, how will the public feel If this person is detained in what could be a tinderbox of a pandemic. According to Hillary, T's charges fall in this send a message ground. He's one of the first cases where she's going to make COVID-19 a part of the argument to get him out. It takes about two weeks between T's phone call to Hillary and the day of his bail hearing. As he waits, the situation keeps getting worse. On March 19th, news breaks that a contractor at Toronto West Detention Centre tested positive. The next day, a correctional officer at Toronto South does too. March 25th, an inmate in Toronto South Detention Centre, just across town from where T is in the east, tests positive for COVID-19. On the outside, Hillary prepares for T's bail hearing, but there are still a lot of unknowns. They had set up teleconference lines for
4: counsel to call in. Um, And so we were all kind of figuring it out as we went along. But
2: it was very uncertain right up into the day how this was going to happen. On the day of the hearing, T is supposed to call in. But something's wrong with the system in the jail. He has to go in person. A correctional officer handcuffs T. Then he's handed off between a whole series of officers. They put him in a paddy wagon with four other prisoners. They drive him to the courtroom where justices of the peace, judges, crown lawyers, and court staff still work. They put him in a box where defendants sit. Then another guard removes T's handcuffs. No one offers T hand sanitizer. He tries not to touch his face. Meanwhile, Hillary is in her office. So Hillary dials into the court, and the bail hearing starts.
0: Welcome to the Ontario Public Service Audio Conferencing System. The moderator has not yet joined the conference. If you are the moderator, please press star now.
2: Now, because of a publication ban, I can't really tell you a lot of specifics about T's hearing. But here's what I can tell you about how cases like T's are unfolding. Bail hearings across Ontario are becoming debating grounds about COVID-19 and the threat it poses. Defense lawyers are arguing that every single prisoner is at risk of getting sick, that detaining them increases that risk. Some Crown attorneys are agreeing, acknowledging the risks to everyone. And some are consenting to more releases than they usually would. Some are also asking for proof of each prisoner's individual risks. They're saying, COVID's not a jailbreak. If you think it should contribute to your release, you need to tell us why. Crown attorneys say they know that COVID in the jails is a public safety issue, but if they agree to a release and that person hurts somebody, that's a public safety issue too. I reached out to the Attorney General asking whether there were any directives to Crown's on how to consider COVID, a spokesperson got back to me with a written statement. In part, it read, quote, Where the prosecutor believes the release of the accused would jeopardize the safety or security of the victim or the public, and such risk cannot be appropriately mitigated by some form of community-based release with conditions, the prosecutor must seek the accused's detention." It went on to say, The decision to grant or deny bail is complex and based on the specific circumstances of each case. There was no mention of COVID-19. So for now, both sides in bail hearings are bringing in statistics and health records, presenting arguments about clients' diabetes, asthma, heart murmurs, cancer, while defendants sit and listen to lawyers argue about their risk of contracting a disease. And then when both sides are done, A judge or a justice of the peace, a person appointed for his or her legal, not medical expertise, makes a decision. T sits in the defendant's box and listens to the arguments. He doesn't talk at all during the hearing. At the end, the justice of the peace says he needs to think about it, mull it over for a night. Hillary hangs up the phone. T goes back to jail. The next day, T is back in court. His mom is sitting in her car outside the courtroom, waiting for the decision. If T gets out, he'll be under house arrest at her place, and she'll need to go inside and sign some papers. She stares at her phone, waiting for a text from Hillary. An hour goes by, and then, finally, her phone lights up. T is going home. I ask T how he feels in that moment,
3: joyful like happy it's unexplainable.
2: I ask him how his mom feels.
3: Oh she was she's was excited more excited than me to be honest yeah. with you.
2: T has <laughs> been at home now for a few weeks he still has a trial ahead but for now he's glad to sleep in his own bed to eat his mom's food. Right after T's day in court, the Ontario Court of Justice stops holding in-person hearings. Hillary still has a whole caseload of bail hearings. Even with good faith on both sides, it took two weeks for T to work out his release plan, to find a surety, to argue his case. Now, multiply that by a few thousand people. For years, advocates have wondered, what would it take to knock our broken system out of its loop and to truly reckon with the conditions in Ontario's prisons? It turns out the answer might have been a pandemic. I think everything
4: is going to be shaken up by this. And where that lands for incarcerated people in Ontario, I don't know.
1: That story was reported by Leora Smith. It was produced by me, A.C. Rowe, and edited by Julia Poggle. Special thanks to The Current's Joan Weber. You can read more about this story at cbc.ca slash docproject. We're a small team this week. Our digital producer is Brandy Weikley. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm A.C. Rowe. Thanks for listening.